And there are no flying cars. There are no flying cars or jetpacks. I'm super yeah, annoyed about that. I am too. And moon base. Yeah. And the moon base. Not okay. Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse in their accomplishments. I'm your host, Elaine Sims, and today I am joined by Jeremy Yoder. Jeremy, welcome. Um, thank you. I'm glad to be here today. Good. Um, who are you, Jeremy? Well, um, I am a pastor, um, young pastor of a small Mennonite congregation in southeastern Colorado in a small rural town. I'm also the host of a new podcast uh, called Geek Cross. So Geek Cross has four episodes so far, correct? Uh, we've recorded five. You've um, recorded five. The next yeah, the next episode is about to come out. Um, it will be out by this time that the show has been. By the time you upload this podcast, um, the, f- the fifth episode will be out. Okay. Yeah, because this is going to actually go out in um, mid-ish March. So right. you should actually have a couple if everything goes according to plan. Yes, I'm in the process of getting ready to record episode six. So what is your podcast about? Basically, um, each episode, I look at a topic that's related to pop culture or to geekdom. And what I'm trying to do is have conversations, a dialogue um, that uses science fiction or or fantasy, um, those general kind of geek stuff as a jumping off point to talk about uh, deeper issues and and wrestle with some of the big questions um, in life. So... I've really enjoyed, I actually listened to three of your four episodes today in preparation Mm -hmm. for this. Um, And it's so interesting to me that I guess my brain does not work the way yours does, or I have not trained it to work the way you do because I'm listening to like all of these parallels that you're making between like you were talking about the interview. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the recent movie. Yeah. With, um, Scott or Scott, Seth Rogen and um, about assassinating Korean dictator. And um, you were you were layering in um, Charlie Chaplin and um, Mel Brooks and bringing like all of these different um, creators and creations together to critique the interview. And that's mm-hmm. not something that I do. I am a consumer and mm-hmm. um, all too frequently not an analyzer. I mean, yeah, I, I, I love culture and I love film and, and science fiction and fantasy and books. And I've always been that way of it's easy for me to see the big picture. Like That's kind of how my brain works. I see big picture. I make connections with things. Um, and, and for me, uh, the, the episode on the interview is the critique was, you know, what is the ramification of making a film about assassinating a current dictator? And here are other examples of where people made fun of Hitler. And why is this film different from, uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator or from Mel Brooks, um, you know, his, his Hitler rap that he did. So are these connections... Like, as you're watching the movie, do you make these connections in your head? Or was it something that 
took kind of stepping back and analyzing for you to realize or put together? In the case of, of sometimes I make these connections when I'm watching it. Sometimes um, it's when I'm thinking about it or I happen to um, read something that will make that connection for me. I actually was not the first person to make that connection between the interview and the, and the great dictator. That was a comparison that a lot of people were making. Um, but, you know, I just I went back and watched a movie and I did a little research on it. And, and that's kind of what the podcast is about. So. I love it. Um, I am not a person of faith, but so far I um, I'm really enjoying your show. Um, is that kind of your goal is for kind of people like me to be able to listen and not. It's one of the things that I, I thought about. Um, I actually do this podcast with another person uh, named Zeth McLaren, who himself um, is a is a he does his own podcasts. Um, he does a podcast called Your Geek Knees, which is about um hardware and another podcast called your transformer needs which is about transformer stuff and he produces and edits and things like that and we were talking about what would be like doing a podcast that uh looked at theology and looked at sort of geek culture stuff um i i've known a number of people myself included who are very theologically minded uh care about theology care about faith but also are huge geeks and there seems to be some sort of connection there between these two things. And so we had talked about doing this podcast together, but Zeth felt that uh, he didn't really have that much to say. I'll be, I'll do the show and he'll do the technical stuff behind it. And it's working out really well right now. Um, when we created the show, I didn't want to be in your face, Christian, um, as well. So the name Geek Cross um, is kind of a play on a couple different words. Of course, cross as in Jesus, but also cross as in intersection, where culture, where faith, where philosophy, where all these things kind of intersect and connect with each other. And my hope certainly was that those um, who are not believers, who are not people of faith, could also get something out of the show. So it's not intended to be evangelistic, um, but it is intended to have conversation and to have a place where some of these questions about faith and how they relate to culture can be talked about. Yeah, I and I appreciate that. I was listening, I think it was the episode two, um, where you were talking about uh, Star Trek six. Mm-hmm. And just how it fit in with culture at the time um, when it was created and um, how how it parallels um, along with some of the things that we're facing today. And one of the points that you brought up was um, we're currently seeing a lot of um, opposition to like LGBTQ rights from the conservative religious right. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about it as, um, as a struggle against the loss of privilege that that demographic has enjoyed for a long time. And I don't know what it was when you put it so succinctly and it just clicked for me. And I was like, Oh, that's totally what I've been feeling about this for, I don't know, years, but I mm-hmm. never quite thought about it in that, like exactly in those words. 
and it really yeah. crystallized a lot of things for me. And I was like, whoa. Well, thank you. I appreciate that 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 it got you to think like that. Um, my denomination, um, the Mennonite Church USA, is looking at the possibility of a, a denominational split right now over this issue of LGBT inclusion. It's been a controversy in my own church, and one of the things that has struck me in the midst of all of this is the amount of pain that people are feeling. People who were in a position where the world reflected their values, where the world reflected their beliefs, and and now it seems to them as if um, the world is turning upside down and they are losing something, and it's a kind of death experience for a lot of people. One thing that, that I've been thinking a lot about is that, you know, when um, Gamergate first started and the death threats were made against Brianna Wu, and she did that interview with Glenn Fleischman. Do you mm-hmm. remember that? Did you hear that? I do, yeah. And, and Glenn said something that I thought was incredibly interesting that I've carried with me since then. And one of the things that he said was, you know, when people who've been at the center of society, you know, that's not quite right. He said, as society becomes more inclusive, those who used to be at the center, those who used to be included before feel less included, are moved to the margins. And that's something that I've sort of, that struck me and I've thought about a lot. I think that's what's happening is that those who have had traditional understandings about sexuality and about marriage are feeling pushed to the margins. And there's enormous amounts of grief and there's enormous amounts of anxiety. And when we are in the process of dealing with loss, uh, you know, either have a fight or flight response. And I think the conservative backlash, you can call it that, is that fight response, trying to prevent a culture from society from moving where it very clearly seems to be moving. So... As I I imagine this comes up in your church as you're like you said, there's there's a schism um, mm-hmm. right now. And I imagine that you have individual congregants coming to you and talking about this issue. What do you say to them? Well, it's been more than just simply individual congregants coming to me you know, about a year ago. In December of 2013, my conference, the Mountain States Mennonite Conference, licensed Theta Good, um, who is uh, in a same-sex relationship, to be an associate pastor at the First Mennonite Church in Denver. And this basically caused this issue, which had been festering for, uh, bubbling below the surface for 20 years, to finally explode. And we actually had, it was a crisis in my own congregation. And we had people who walked out of 30-year relationships were just gone over this, over this decision. And that was an incredibly painful um, situation. What, what I ended up doing in the midst of that, I spent a lot of time listening. One of the things I realized that in my capacity as a pastor, it wasn't really my place um, to declare a position, but rather to listen uh, to what people were experiencing and to their grief and to their pain. Um, It's been very difficult for people. So I've been criticized for that as well. Um, And I certainly accept that, that criticism. 
of not speaking out enough or prophetically or uh, things like that. Um, but I saw as my pastor, uh, as my role as pastor to try to keep the church together. And I knew that if I made a, a de- declaration, there would be a segment of the congregation that I would no longer be able to have a pastoral relationship with. So it's been a lot of walking uh, a very thin line. I find it, hmm, how do I want to say? It's it's interesting to me. So I have I have two views of the Mennonite church. I have sure. my experience of it. Well, not of the church itself, but of people in it. Um, some of my best friends growing up were Mennonite, and they were the only person, people, only person. This family was the only Mennonite family in our community, so they went to like a Baptist church um, to, for mm-hmm. fellowship. Um, and in my experience of them um, to this day, because we are in touch now, is of um, fairly um, liberal minded, um, you know, not at all conservative people. And in a church, you know, it, it was a it was a Southern Baptist church and it was, you know, very um, the Bible is the literal word and commandment and testament of God and, um, you know, very, very conservative Christian and then we've got, you know, this liberal family in it. And it was a very stark contrast to me. But there's also this, I think, popular media perception that I have, because that's my only experience of of people who actually are Mennonite. And then there's the the popular media that's like, well, Mennonites are almost Amish. And mm-hmm. um, that's how they are just like universally. This is this group of people. And um, and so these these two things in my head kind of butt up against each other. Um, so when you say that um, a, a, a woman who was in a same-sex relationship was put in a leadership position in the church, that goes against that popular like media portrayal of the Mennonite church. Right. So Mennonites, like the Kinsey scale on sexuality, is a spectrum. And there's a range of, of positions and places. On the one end, you have the Amish and our cousins, you know, that are our cousins. You have the old order, you have the conservatives. And on the other end of the range, you've got the more liberal Mennonites where that would be where I would find myself. And even within that, the Mennonite church, the more liberal Mennonites, there is a range. Um, and right now we have some disagreements about authority and about interpretation and, um, that's what we're kind of fighting about. But certainly the pop culture view of, of Mennonites is more closer to Amish than it is to uh, where I am. I, I drive a car. I have electricity in my house. Um, I use technology. I dress like everyone else. My grandparents, um, they dressed, they were plain dress. My grandmother wore a head covering um, and a, what they call a cape dress. So it's it's a range of of different expressions and different communities, and we're not all one monolithic group. Much like every monolithic or every perception <laughs> of a monolithic group, surprise, yeah, I mean, we're not. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that the fascination with the Amish because they do sort of stand out in our culture and have what appears to be a very different set of values and beliefs, and you know. 
there's a genre of um, entertainment we call you know, Amish exploitation, um, exploitation Amish stuff like the TV shows like um, Breaking Amish or uh, the other one would be Amish Mafia. Those kinds of shows that I think are of of, of the Amish and their way of life as a way of getting cheap entertainment. Yeah, I. I I I don't even know. Um, (laughs) It's just it's sad, I guess, because I I feel like our pop culture machine is taking advantage of of a group of people who are different, you know, like we Mm -hmm. always do. And, um, you know, they're the people in these shows are able to make their own decisions, obviously, but I, it just, it feels skeezy to me. And this is why I don't watch reality TV. Um, well, I, the Amish are a safe target uh, as a conservative, um, you know, faith. Uh, you wouldn't, I don't think get away doing a show about Orthodox Jews in the way that you could do about the Amish. And, and so that, that is something I'm concerned about. Um, you know, many of the folks that do end up on those kinds of shows are, are people who are on the margins of the community already. Um, the Breaking Amish kids, many of them had, my understanding, had already kind of left. And so it's not everything that, that you see. But there is a lot of misunderstanding um, of who the Amish are and why they make the decisions that they do. I remember reading one time um, that the Amish don't allow f- photographs taken of them because they're worried about, you know, their soul being captured by the camera, which is total nonsense. It has to do with the prohibition of graven images in the Old Testament, why the Amish don't allow photographs to be taken. Um, so there's a lot of misunderstanding about why they would do what they do. Yeah, and there are, to be clear, there are some cultures where that is a belief. There is some cultures where that's belief, yes. Not the Amish. Um, Not the Amish. Yeah, I... Um... I don't know. I I don't know. I, Jeremy, I don't know. Cuz it's like I can't I can't email and be like how can I support you? Like, you know. No, I mean it's 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 not an issue of support. It's an issue of 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 being aware and you know, those and it's really complicated too, Aileen. Uh, sorry, not Aileen. Aileen. It's it's complicated, Aileen, because the Amish have a, a symbiotic relationship with the tourism stuff, which on the one hand exploits them, you know, but on the other hand, they are participant because they benefit economically from it. Um, and and as farmland becomes more expensive, as it becomes unaffordable in places like Pennsylvania or Indiana, the Amish are turning increasingly turning to uh tourism and they're turning to um light manufacturing you know the amish made furniture that uses this mystique of of the amish to sell products so it's an incredibly complicated relationship but be aware that i think i think the thing i would say is that be aware that when you see amish depicted in either reality television or in tv shows or in movies that you're not necessarily getting an accurate picture of who the Amish are. So, like Tim Allen and oh, 
Uh, Christy Alley. Christy Alley, yes, in For Richer or Poorer is not an accurate depiction of what might happen in Amish society. Yeah. Yeah, it's not accurate. Yeah, and sometimes, yeah. And, or for another example would be, I can't remember the name right now, but there was a TV movie that was based off of the Nickel Mines Massacre, where, you know, a number of years ago, a um, a very disturbed individual walked into a, a farmhouse, not farmhouse, walked into a schoolroom mm-hmm. and, um, you know, shot a bunch of Amish kids. And the Amish community responded with forgiveness and reached out to the family of this individual. Well, there was a book written about it. It was a book written by Mennonites who had connections with the Amish. It was turned into a TV movie. And the problem with the TV movie is that the, if the film focused on an Amish woman and the question of whether or not she was going to forgive uh, the, the murderer. And the Amish, that would never happen in the Amish. They're not individualistic um, people. They, community is extremely important. Community decisions are, are made as a group. And, and so there would have not been a question but whether or not you're supposed to forgive someone who has harmed you or hurt you, you're just simply supposed to do it. And that's, I think, one of the things that, that culture, pop culture does not understand about, about who the Amish are. Well, and it's, isn't it like one of the cruelest or harshest forms of punishment in Amish communities is like to be shunned by your community? Yes. Um, to be banned, the ban. Yeah. Um, it, it, it actually is originally intended to be a, in the context of the Reformation, to be a less harsh um, punishment because, you know, back in the Reformation, when, when the Anabaptists, who are the forebears of the Amish and the Mennonites, um, began to rebel against the, both the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, you know, they were, they were killed and they were persecuted. And the ban is seen as a less you know, harsh sentence than, than execution. My own family has experienced this too. Um, my grandparents on my father's side left the Amish when my dad was five years old. And, you know, my grandmother's family excommunicated them and they haven't talked to them in over 50 years. And I think that is part of our dysfunction and our the difficulty that we have in dealing with conflict in the Mennonite church. Um, the conservatives talk about unity of thought, that we are all sort of to be on the same page um, theologically and in terms of religious practice, but we often have situations where there is disagreement. What do you do? Our impulse is to break up and to split, and that's why there are so many different groups. So the, that's interesting to me because... One of the things I have had to learn as like a human being um, striving to be as good as I can, quote unquote, good is dealing with conflicts and kind of agreeing to disagree with people. And um, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around like we are one like like a collective and this is our this is how it is. And there is no like, and this is, this is way simplifying it. I realize, but like, there's no, like the Borg, like there's no individual thought here, you know, like not to compare the Mennonite church to like (laughs) the 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 evil that wants (laughs) to assimilate every form of like humanity. But, um, you know what I mean? Like, 
like that happens. Disagreement happens. And learning how to deal with that has been something I have had to struggle to do. So I have a hard time. And the church apparently also has a hard time trying to figure out how to navigate that. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly there there. Are, I mean, there is disagreement, you know, um, the question is if anybody acts on that disagreement or whether or not you try to conform. The the Amish and the conservative Mennonites and the Old Order Mennonites really push this idea of nonconformity with the world, that we are different from the world. But in the midst of that nonconformity, there's a lot of conformity and there's a lot of social pressure to um, not rock the boat. And, and bishops have um, a lot of authority and a lot of power within local you know, Amish would be colonies or, or congregations. Um, so, you know, my grandparents, they left and they paid a cost for that. And this is something that happens over and over and over again. I mean, we're by, not, by far not perfect. Um, and I think in general, conflict is really hard for, for people to know how to, to navigate. Um, I think Gamergate would be an example of that. Um, there is this horrific conflict that's been going on. It's been going on for months and people have acted terribly and horribly in the midst of all that. And a lot of it has to do with this question of loss, you know, folks that, uh, gamers that are scared that feminist critics are going to come and take their video games away. And how do they act? They, they try to wipe out the threat. Yeah. And on the one hand, I, I want to be compassionate. You know, I want to be like, I understand that you are afraid. Um, however, you know, knock it off. <laughs> but on on the other hand, I just, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's because um, I was raised to be somewhat open-minded and, and um also to have some faith in people. And um, I just don't. I, I'm really pushing you here, aren't I? Uh, it's this headache. <laughs> <laughs> here I think I'm having this, you know. It's not just you. I mean, you are. So, so uh, talking about faith is outside of my comfort zone. Um for for a lot of reasons, um, because sure. of my own um, experience as identifying as a Christian um, in my youth and then in high school, um, kind of stepping away from that and being like, you know, this is this is not something I want to have anything to do with anymore. Um, so, you know, I've got that that uh, childhood baggage <laughs> with it. Um, and there's also this. Because I had so many conservative Christian friends growing up, mm -hmm. um, there's like there's this very clear divide in my head about what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not allowed to say uh, without offending people. And it's something that I'm I am working on getting past. Um, but things are going to blow up like in my personal life as I become more of a vocal advocate, um, not just like on Twitter and on my podcast, but like posting things on Facebook. <laughs> and um, so I've actually held off on having an episode where I kind of 
talk about Christianity um, with anybody, let alone a, a pastor. <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, I kind of have that kind of going on in the back of my head. Like, what what am I safely allowed to say without offending people? Well, you you won't offend me. Um, I know. <laughs> you know, you won't offend me, and and. Let me let me tell you a little bit about my story and kind of where how I ended up here, you know, um, if that's OK. Absolutely. You know, if somebody told me 15 years ago that I would be a pastor, that I would be in the church, that I would be in southeastern Colorado in a small town, I would have laughed at them because that was the last thing that I expected to do. I consider myself to be a recovering agnostic. Um, I was a missionary kid. I spent a good part of my childhood in Germany, uh, in Berlin growing up. And when I was in high school, I be- entered in this period of doubt and I really struggled. I got to the point where I always asked questions and I got to the point where the answers um, that people gave me no longer resonated with me. I think the absolute worst response to somebody who is struggling with with belief is to say just have faith right just have faith that is a terrible response and i got to the point where i really struggled um to believe and and i was i thought i was done with church i actually went to a mennonite college um to goshen college in indiana where i met my wife and uh, she had grown up mormon and when we got married, both of us were done with church. Uh, we kind of called ourselves religious refugees. You know, we were escaping the church. And we we spent a couple of years in Los Angeles, and things had not been going well. And uh, we related some to a small Mennonite church in Upland, California. And one Sunday, they asked me to lead. And so I led worship, and I had this overwhelming sense, you know, we call that the call, you know, that I belonged in the front of a church. This is where I belonged. And yet I didn't know what I believed in God or if I believed in God. And so part of, it took me about five years to go to seminary. And part of the process has been to um, make peace with the Christianity of my childhood to make peace with the kinds of, of Christians that offend me and bother me and uh, I feel sometimes threatened by, make peace with the evangelicals, um, and, and to, to seek God the best that I can. And I certainly would say that in the last number of years, I have, I have grown in faith that I feel more more confidence about what I believe, but at the same time, I, I view doubt as a traveling companion. The other thing in response to what you're saying about how it is a t- weird or strange it is to talk to a pastor is sometimes it's weird for me to be a pastor, um, especially a young pastor, because when I stepped into this role, I, I stepped into all these, these expectations. You know, suddenly, you know, I had a seminary degree and an and MDiv, a Master of Divinity, and what they teach you in seminary is is theology and church history and how to write a sermon and how to interpret scripture 
and they'll give you some family systems theory, and then they throw you out into the world. You start at a church, and all of a sudden, you're speaking for God. (laughs) No pressure. No pressure. It's just little me here. Who am I to speak for the Almighty? But there has been this cultural expectation of pastors that we are supposed to fit in this box. And I've run into that. When I first moved out to this town, people would out in the community say to me, you look nothing like a pastor. Because I guess I'm not old. I'm not an old guy. I've run to that in my congregation. Um, some people who are expecting certain kinds of behavior from me and a certain way of, of being and speaking. And that's not me. I can only pastor and minister out of who I am um, as a person who's growing and, and developing. But, but, but I do have a sense of, of who I am. And, and so sometimes I, I run into these expectations. Um, my wife had an experience where she was out in the city park and, and a woman came up to talk to her and asked her why she had moved here. And, oh, we're here because my husband's work. And, oh, what does your husband do? And she said, he's a pastor. And um, this woman turned around and walked away. You know, there there are certainly pastors out there who fit the stereotype. And I think who make people feel guilty, who I think sometimes overstep and misuse authority. It, it's not. They're people. Yeah, they're people. They're not all pastors, you know. Right. Um, I, I've been in meetings, you know, where. Um, people have really shared behind closed doors what pastors sometimes will say to each other and the things that we carry um, as as leaders in church, as often dealing with the kinds of conflicts that we were talking about. It, it can be a very lonely and a very painful kind of experience. I think any kind of leadership experience can be very lonely and painful. Um, but sometimes we we struggle with the cultural expectations of who we're supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's everybody. I can tell you, you shared your story. I'll share mine. Um, I, uh, I went to a private seventh day Adventist school. Um, not because, yeah. (laughs) Oh, you have no idea. Not because my family was religious, but because I grew up in a small town and the options were public school where I was not thriving at all. Um, once we moved to this town or the private seventh day Adventist school for like $50 a month, $50. Wow. $50 a month. And my mom, um, is, was a teacher, a special needs teacher and a single parent um, to me. And it was a struggle for her to afford that $50 a month. Um, Mm -hmm. But I grew up going to the school and then because I made friends um, who went to the church, I started going to church on Saturdays. Um, when I re-entered public school, um, I still struggled because it's a small town. It was still all the same kids I struggled with before. Um, and so there was a new family in town in eighth grade when I started school. And they were, um, what am I thinking, Protestant. And... Um, And so I started going to Bible studies with them and, you know, then started going to church with them and um, was actually pretty um, fanatic is not the word I want to use, but very devout, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. 
until my senior year of high school um, when there was like this uh, succession of uh, bad things that happened. Like um, we had a murder in the school. We had um, not in the school, but one of my classmates murdered another one of my classmates. Um, we wow. had, yeah, um, another classmate a few months later um, was killed in a car accident. Um, one of my best friend's fathers um, was killed in a hunting accident. And like it kind of, I was like all of these crisis, crises of faith. And I was like, this is, this is not working for me. And I kind of just backed out and walked away. Mm -hmm. Um. But I will say that having friends with such faith um, and having I was friends with pastor's children. So I, I don't have this like um, uh, like pastors are not scary people to me. I know that they right, are to right. some people, but, um, you know, it's just like, OK, it's it's a person. I just um you know, didn't anticipate that my first conversation, and I guess it's better that my first conversation kind of about Christianity would be with a pastor, but uh, I wanted to explain that a little bit. Like, I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't scare me, Jeremy. Okay. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. No, I mean, what you're describing is something, I mean, I had experienced in my own times of doubt, similar things. I think one of the things that we do a, a disservice um, is the insistence on certainty, which is not necessarily the same thing as faith. You know, that we demand often in the church that people have a strong uh, position and are not always allowed to ask questions. And I think that's difficult because, you know, one of the things that is often taught in church that I think is untrue is that if you have a strong faith, if you believe all the right things and you follow the rules, especially about sex, that God will shower blessings upon you and nothing bad will ever happen to you. And that is just nonsense. Um, suffering is very much part of, I think, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And certainly the scriptures, uh, the New Testament talks about, you know, the followers of Christ will experience persecution. Uh, certainly, Jesus Christ himself was was nailed on a cross and was executed. And suffering is very much at the center of of what it means to be a, a Christian. But I think in in the West, in the United States, um, we have taken this kind of consumerist, uh, easily digestive faith and, and insist that you know if we're good, we get stuff. <laughs> you know, we mm -hmm. get good health and we get material things. And I think that's wrong. I, when I was in seminary, one of my professors had been part of a a mission in South Central L.A. for about 20 years. And she used to do Bible study with these um, low-income African-American women. And they would read the New Testament, and they would read about Jesus. And what they said was that Jesus understood their pain, that because Jesus, the Son of God, experienced suffering, he understood how they felt. And so I think that's, to me, a, a much healthier way of approaching, much more authentic way of approaching uh, some of these questions, that, that God does not promise things will always be okay, but that God is present when things are, are hard and difficult and painful. 
And my, my final response, and I'm sorry I'm talking so much here, um, is that, you know, what you're describing is something that, you know, I hear a lot of part of what I think the church is struggling with right now is this, this shift that's going on. You know, once upon a time, you know, respectable, good people, what they did was they went to church and he had church three times a week, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. That was your social life. Everything went around church. And at one point, society finally said, you know, you don't have to be, you can be a good person and, and you don't have to go to church. And and people just left. And so right now we're in a time where Christianity is losing influence and power and and so we're we're dealing with the, the categories, demographic categories, what we call the nuns and the duns. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. So the nuns are those who, when on a on a survey, you know, when asked you what your faith is on the census, you know, mark none of the above. Mm-hmm. The duns are people who used to go to church, often as children, and are now done. And so we are seeing an increase um, in those categories very quickly, a lot faster than anybody really expected. And there's research out on this from a group called Barna, which is an evangelical uh, polling and um, sociology group. They do, they do studies on these kinds of things. And that's part of the crisis. What you're describing to me is something I hear a lot of. People that grew up in church and for whatever reason, no longer connect. And that is certainly a, a challenge for those of us in the church if we want to continue to, to be vibrant and active. How do we, how do we relate to people? Um, often I think churches no longer understand the culture that they live in. And we have this expectation that things are the same as they were 40, 50 years ago, but they're not. Yeah, and I think that's where... For me, it's it's interesting because um, I was listening to your show in the car today as I was frantically driving all over the Phoenix Valley um, today. And um, my husband and I were talking about it a little bit. And he was like, so what do you think? And I said, well, you know, if if I were so inclined, um, you know, I grew up with the fundamentalist, you know, the earth is 6,000 years old. The Bible right. is the literal word of God. Um, it is not up for interpretation. It is what it is. Um, and that, that does not make sense to me. And if I were to contemplate a return to a church, um, it would have to be kind of what, what you're talking about in, in Geek Cross, which is more of a, um, you know, we use the Bible for guidance, um, but it is not like not every word in here is literal. <laughs> like yeah. we, we do not stone children. We do not stone adulterers. We do not, you know, um, I don't know. It's it's just interesting to me because I had never been exposed before, like literally today to, um, to ideas um, that were not kind of based in that fundamental perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think for people like me, that's, that's imperative. I mean, I think one of the things that I hope about the podcast is that it will help some folks to, to get some sense of peace over what they had experienced. Um, 
and to have some conversation about things like that that are, are difficult. Um, the number the, the fourth episode that I'd done was with a local biology teacher who had grown up Methodist and no longer is part of, of the church. And, and to have some of that discussion about the relationship between science and faith and, and, and doubt and understanding. And, um, you know, I think, I think there, we're, we're about to experience or in the process of experience enormous change in the church. And I'm certainly, there will always be fundamentalists. I'm not sure that they're always going to be the dominant um, voice of Christianity in this, in this country, especially as the infrastructure of church is beginning to fall apart because it's not sustainable anymore. Yeah. And I mean, the pace of society, it's, it's hard. I think when you're, talking about institutions that are so slow to change, um, which we see everywhere. It's not just, you know, religious Mm -hmm. organizations. Um, but the pace of society right now is such that, um, you've, you've got to be agile, you know, you, you, um, and, and that's, that's difficult when you're talking about um, doctrine and um, official, you know, uh, sh- sanctioned beliefs or sanctioned right. probably isn't the right word. But um, I, I can see, I can see the difficulty, you know, I can, I, I have sympathy for that. Yeah. I mean, I think for myself, and this might be partly being the product of, having grown up overseas and having been in different cultures is that for me, relationships matter more than the doctrine. Um, certainly there are issues with that kind of place, but I, you know, I pastor a lot of people who politically I have very little in common, um, but we are still able to have a relationship with each other in part because I think I'm willing to enter into a somewhat ambiguous space with them where we don't necessarily go to those convictions immediately, you know, um, and hopefully are able to build enough respect with each other that we can have a relationship, even though we may vote differently um, in the ballot box. You know, I have a number of good friends who are atheists. I like hanging out with atheists because once they get over, oh my goodness, you're a pastor. Um, I can be with them and, and they don't treat me like I'm a pastor, you know, with my congregation, even though I love them and they love me and we have a good relationship, I'm always the pastor and I don't, I get some space when I'm with my atheist friends. Of course, at some point we have to talk about faith because of, of what I do and my work, but there is respect and, and there's relationship there. And so for me, that is really, really important. But, you know, you talked about, um, that you have a, a because of your own experience of being othered, that you know you have a heart for those who are on the margins, and that's something I share with you because you know as as a, as growing up you know as an American in, in Germany, and then we spent part of my childhood um, in an inner city suburban neighborhood of Chicago in Evanston, um, where I was mostly around. You know, I spent most of my my life not really fitting in either. And that has generated in me a deep empathy for those who are on the margins and those who are struggling. Um, 
I think that's maybe one of the gifts of not fitting in as a kid. Yeah, I I think so too. I um I've been thinking a lot about uh the lack of empathy that I see in people. Um mm-hmm. I I think a lot of it comes from that that space of fear that we were talking about earlier. Um you know, as far as like Gamergate is concerned and as far as like the Christian community kind of being faced with um like marriage equality and things that they don't agree with and things that maybe mean that they aren't, you know, on top in society. Um, and like, like coming from this place of fear, when you're afraid, you don't really care so much about other people. You know, you, you care no. about making sure that you are okay. And that, you know, the things that you love and the things that you care about are taken care of, you know, and after, after you're sure that's secure, you know, then you have room for empathy. But when you're in that, that fight stage, when you're holding on desperately, like that's all you have the energy and the mental space for. Right. Well, that was one of the reasons why I got involved with the, the, the GG autoblocker that Randy Harper created. Um, I'm on the, the appeals board for that. And I help write some of the policies that they use because I felt this, I, I've never been targeted by Gamergate, um, but I felt this, 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 this sickness over what I was seeing um, play out. And when Randy asked for volunteers, I volunteered. You know, I, I accept the criticism that, you know, the blocker is is kind of a blunt instrument. But I think at that moment, we needed something. and. So I, I try to help out in a small way um, to, to do that, to pr- protect people from this onslaught of toxicity that they were experiencing, unrelenting toxicity. It's just, it's so hard to, to read some of this stuff. And I despair sometimes, you know? Yeah, I, um, lately I've been, um, having a hard time with, um, you know, this space of, um, I don't want to say advocacy, but of, of speaking up when I, I see things happening that aren't right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some, there are days there, there are mornings where I open up you know, I launched Twitter and I look at it and I'm like, yeah, I can't, I can't deal with this. Like I literally cannot deal with this anymore. And I've, I've thought about a lot over like the last couple of weeks. I'm like, I could just not look at Twitter ever again and maybe be okay, you know? Right. And cause it's bad. It it's is bad. I mean, it's bad. Yeah. You know, we're recording this on the February 24th. You know, today, and I'm going to butcher this name, so I'm sorry, but, you know, Verinder Jabal, is that his name? Mm, uh, I don't <clears throat> follow him, so, okay, but I know who you're talking about. He he created the Stop Gamergate 2014 hashtag. Um, he's a Sikh. Um, he said goodbye to Twitter today. He has been harassed off Twitter. And I am so mad about that. That's just unjust it's not right and i can't blame him and i i will say it's interesting to me because 
I am very um like especially on issues of feminism um i mm-hmm. i i tend to because that's what i can speak to like i try for lgbtq issues and uh, and other things i try to retweet people rather than speaking but feminism like i can speak about that and so it's interesting to me that sometimes i get retweeted like five times and sometimes I get retweeted like 20 times and I very rarely get any abuse even in this with less than or equal even in this space I don't really get a lot of um, negative feedback or abuse for this but Mm -hmm. the second Brianna Wu retweets me that's when I get abuse (laughs) and it's fascinating to me well I think that's partly because uh, Brianna is is a symbol um she absolutely is yeah you know and and she's high you know they're they're looking for symbols to attack and we don't matter so much which is kind of kind of a blessing here i think yeah Um, well and it's it's a discussion that justin and i have and i've told the story on the podcast before that before i started the show it was it was a point of consideration like okay you're gonna get harassment is that okay like people might dox you is that okay um you know what? when i got involved when i got involved with the autoblocker i had that discussion with my wife too i mean of course nothing has happened i don't even use the blocker myself i have had no need to use it you're protected like <laughs> i'm protected i'm a guy i'm a yeah, white male are. and i do walk around with a certain amount of privilege because of that um, that does protect me. And, you know, I think you try to use that as responsibly as you can. But, you know, I also, I have not been outspoken in attacking Gamergate either. Um, you know, and so maybe I have not done what I should, what I'm responsible for, you know. Shit is such a loaded word. Shit is a very loaded word, yeah. It, it's, um... There's a lot of shoulds in life, and I don't think all of them are strictly necessary. Um, you know, I don't know. I shouldn't have said that word, or I should I don't know, behave with more decorum, or... I mean, I, I think the good news here is that, you know, often with sort of toxic um, people or with uh, toxic movements, um, you know, eventually they lose their, their power. You know, Gamergate is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I think people use negativity and use harassment as a way of trying to get their way. Um, you know, they're striking out, they're fighting, they're afraid. And, and so they, people have this tendency, I think, to default to these kinds of behaviors um, in order to, to have power. Um, and, you know, I've, it works for a while. It gets attention for a while, but then people kind of get tired of it, and it kind of comes to the point where it's like, well, you know, um, okay, and kind of ignore them. And I think I think Gamergate actually, you know, despite the fact that they seem to, to keep upping their attacks and the viciousness of their attacks is losing steam. And I don't think for most folks have to strike the same kind of fear and panic um, that they used to. But that being said, you know, certain symbols, certain symbolic people 
like Brianna or Randy Harper or Anita Sarkeesian or Zoe Quinn, you know, bear the brunt of of this behavior. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to be letting up. And that that scares me. Yeah, that scares me, too. And that's um, my real concern is what is a desperate person going to do in order to um, further their cause or reignite um, this movement, I guess, and to make it a big deal again. And where does it end? I mean, when this breaks out into real life. You know, where does where does it end? Uh, you know, this this case right now with the let's put it in quotes and air quotes, this Kavik, um, who was threatening Brianna Wu and made a video of him in the car accident on his way. He was claiming to confront Brianna Wu. Like that was really scary. Yep. And fortunately, it turns out to be a really poorly thought out joke. And. But yeah, somebody out there isn't joking. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. Like, there are so many issues with that. Like, okay, you are you're a white guy. I don't know. Like, you're a white guy saying that this is satire. Uh, like in a commentary about GamerGate and the kinds of things that they have done. Um. But you can't do that as a white guy because people are not going to think it's satire. <laughs> like you, no, you just right. you you can't do that. And um, what gets me though is like he threatened Brianna. He said, "I crashed, I crashed my mom's Prius on the way to her house. You know, I have these guns." Blah blah blah. Um, and then she was like, "I am really scared." Like, I am really scared. And at that point, you know, he should have been like, oh, I severely misstepped here. Like, obviously, this is not what I intended. But they doubled down Mm -hmm. and continued to post videos. And that's just the whole thing is just mind boggling to me. Yeah, it is. I mean, part of what make comedy works is that you're in on the joke. You know, there's this some comedic distance. At some point, you get to punchline and you realize this is just a joke. This is not real. And he crossed that that line into something that looked very, very real. I think part of the problem is we don't take responsibility for our words anymore. You know, I one of the things that I, I had to struggle with was, you know, when I'm in the pulpit and I'm speaking for God or people are view me as speaking for God. That's a huge responsibility. I have to be very careful about what I say. I mean, still be authentic, but take care and think about the words that I use and be responsible for when I use words incorrectly or in ways that people misunderstand. Gamergate is constantly evading responsibility for what they say and do. You know, when they say there's no harassment. And somebody comes up and says, well, here's an example. And then they're like, that's not harassment. You know, that's not really going on. I can only speak for myself. I cannot speak for the rest of it because we're not a real organized movement. Nobody is taking any responsibility. And people are acting as if their words have no impact and no effect. And I am afraid that this is going to go some end up somewhere really bad as this 
begins to bleed out in, in, into real life. Yep. Yeah, I am too. I am too. And I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. Like, what's the solution here? There's literally nothing I can do except what I do, you know? Like, I can't knock on people's doors and be like, okay, you need to stop. You know, as, as pastor, I find myself often in when I'm dealing with folks um, and sometimes the complexities of their lives, I feel very much a, a sense of powerlessness. Um, you know, <clears throat> you know, and, and for example, a, a terrible family situation, um, people making horrible choices for themselves. And you just want to shake them and say, make better choices. You know, <laughs> um, you can't do that, though. And and so part of of I think um, of what I've been learning is to you know give give it up to God so to speak you know and and, and realize that I am not really in control of all these things and to surrender my my need for control um, and my need for for security because it doesn't really exist. Everything can be taken away any moment. And, um, you know, for, for because I am a person of faith, that, that means, I think, trusting God um, but I, or some sort of higher power. But I think, you know, you don't necessarily have to believe that in order to, to try to, to surrender or, or try to give up that need for control. But it's so hard, you know, and, and I know you know that, but it's it's just like I should be able to do some and the shoulds again, like I should be able to do something about this. And there is like literally nothing besides like, OK, like I'm doing what I can do and that's literally all I can do. And yeah. well, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I I thank people for when they say things that I agree with. I, I try to be, you know, for a positive voice, you know, um, for some of the things that, that folks are going through. It's, it's nothing. It's very little. Um, but you try to do what you can. And I try very hard not to insert myself where I'm not wanted or, or, or needed and, and try to respect people and have empathy for people. You know, and I have to say, one of the things that I admire about some of the the folks that are uh, in the crosshairs of Gatorgate, like Brianna Wu or Randy Harper, is that they demonstrate empathy. In the midst of what Brianna has gone through, there have been things that she has said on Isometric. There are things that she has written on, on Twitter that show empathy for people. And, and there are times, you know, Randy has, my understanding, has helped some Gamergate people with the harassment that they've received. And I think that speaks very highly for, for these individuals. And it's something that I very much respect about them. Yeah, I do too. I, um, it, it takes for me, I guess I can't speak universally, but for me, it takes a lot to forgive somebody. And like, I'm kind of like a, I'll trust you until you cross me and then we're done. And yeah, yeah, I know people like that. I'm married to somebody like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm better about that as I'm as I'm getting older and, and realizing that, you know, things aren't cut and dry and I need to kind of get over that um, to some extent anyway. But um, 
the fact that 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 Brianna is, um, I you know, I've seen her say she'll she'll tweet, uh, you know, I got got this thing from a Gamergator today apologizing and apology absolutely accepted. I'm so glad that, you know, um, that you wrote to me. And again, with like Randy Harper helping people who have been doxxed, like I think that that takes a level of integrity that is mm. um extremely valuable and um oftentimes lacking in um in people i was gonna say in like pe- modern people but i think it's just people of every era <laughs> yeah no i think i think we don't we don't really change <laughs> i'm a very pessimist about about human nature you know we talk about forgive and forget and i don't think that forgiveness and, and for, forgetting makes sense um you don't really ever forget the things that have happened to you. I think forgiveness means is that what has happened in the past no longer has power over you. That you've gotten to the point where you can accept um, what has happened and you can live with it and maybe even have relationship with the people that, that hurt you. But it doesn't mean that you go on as if nothing had happened, as if... um these violations and this, this, this toxicity didn't happen. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that frustrates me. And, and here we're going to talk about more Gamergate politics, but with this Mark Kern thing, the, 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 the one of the things that gets me about the Mark Kern um, petition about Polygon and Kotaku and where he says, you know, he's trying to hear both sides and here is, you know, the, the, the allegations from Gamergate and can the other side respond to it is that there is no, no sense here of people accounting for and taking responsibility for um, the things that they've done. And you cannot, when it comes to marginal people and when it comes to people who have experienced violence, both virtual and real, you cannot build bridges with their oppressors, with the perpetrators, without the perpetrator giving account for and taking responsibility for what they did. There's no bridge to build here without that. And that's what's been missing in this in this conversation that he is trying to have. Yeah. Well, and who who speaks for like I, there are people who speak for Gamergate, whether they admit it or not, you know, their quote unquote leaderless movement. But who speaks for the people who are not in that camp? I mean, there are people, again, Randy Harper, Brianna Wu, Zoe Quinn, who have kind of been like spotlighted and I guess kind of have become the people who kind of speak for the rest of us but it's just literally just us and <laughs> who, who's responding to that you know like it 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 made no sense to me like who are you asking for a rebuttal i don't i don't understand right and and why does some satirical cartoon that makes these allegations have any authority that needs to be responded to how is this not, how is this something more than just noise really you know um yeah it, it's it's there has if if there's going to be healing um if there's going to be bridge building there has to be an accounting for what has happened and people have to take responsibility and as long as that doesn't happen there will 
gaming will be fragmented. Um, and, and I think you have, will have different interest groups going in different ways. And that's just the way things are. Yeah. And I don't see that, that kind of accounting and that accountability. I, unless there's a major change, I don't anticipate that's going to happen. Like it's just going to have to be, you know, I mean, even if we could ignore each other, like if we could get, it just is what it is. Yeah. And just, just let's just drop it. Yeah. I mean, I see parallels with, I see, how, I see parallels with how people act at church over conflict. You know, there are those folks who are passive aggressive, you know, who will, who will sit in a meeting, say nothing. And then, you know, I mean, I've experienced this out in the hallway, out in the parking lot. We'll try to, you know, ruin you and take away any kind of influence you'll have and talk bad about you and talk bad about your back. It's this enormous sort of passive aggressive way of trying to be in control and take power. And, you know, every organization has people like that. Um, it is a form of dishonesty. And so I, I, I think we're at an impasse. I think Gamergate. Is, is is no longer has has steam to it, but there but the folks that are the true believers, or the folks that are getting a kick out of it, they're not going anywhere. And it may be simply just one of the hazards that we have to live with on the internet, on Twitter. Ugh. Ugh. This is the most depressing <laughs> conversation ever. Isn't it the worst? What's going on? We were gonna have fun, Jeremy. I don't know what happened. I'm so sorry. I kept <laughs> I, I kept talking about where's Georgia. <laughs> See if we can co-opt her laugh. Well, let's let's change topic here. <laughs> co-opt her. I mean, just you need to record it. You know how she has this coin thing she does, Mario coin. You just need to have her laugh yep. to just push it out there every once in a while. Just on a soundboard. Yeah. Soundboard. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit more about um the relationship between sort of story and geekdom and how we, and identity. And that, that might be a better topic. Okay. Let's talk about story. All right. So my first, my first episode was basically about storytelling and I was trying to set things up. And for me, what has been sort of interesting in as, as a Christian and as uh, a geek, geek interested person, um, geek oriented individual is the role that storytelling plays in our lives. One of the things that I, I got in trouble with a professor in seminary was I, you know, I made a, a comparison between religious faith um, and people who go to cons and dress up and the relationship that fans have with, with fandom. Um, and his, his objection was, you know, that fandom essentially is about our own preferences and our own choices rather than, a commitment to something bigger than us, you know, that when you're a Christian, you sign up to certain kinds of, of beliefs and some of these things are non-negotiable. That's not really, you know, fandom is, is kind of a part of, of uh, the consumer culture. It's an expression of consumer culture. It's expression of our preference. On the one hand, he's right. But on the other hand, I don't think that really explains the passion that people have for these, these, um, these properties, you know, I mean, why would somebody love Star Trek so much that they would go through the expense of the time to dress up as a Klingon to go to a con, right? I mean, there's something there. There's something that connects people. It, it has some meaning beyond just simply uh, the show. 
Oh, I, I think it absolutely does. It's um, it's community. Mm-hmm. It, and especially I talked to Maddie Myers about this, you know, because she's she's a big into cosplay and talking about, you know, back in like the 90s when the next generation was on the air, like the time when you met uh, the the Star Trek people, your fellow Trekkies was when you went to conventions and you were showing your um, your love and admiration for, you know, the show or a character by dressing up. I think that it's um, it's huge for for that, for for community building, for um, finding friends um, and even like, you know, Star Trek, Star Trek's a tricky thing for me because I love it so much. Um, mm-hmm. But like this, um, you know, and it applies to other things, too. You know, like San Diego Comic Con for years was like this small place for people who literally loved comics. It wasn't the pop culture extravaganza it is now. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a way to to come together and a way to celebrate. Um, and one of the things that, sh- that strikes me about it is that people so you know, badly want to live in this, this world, you know, that's created in these shows and these movies and these books that they they would dress up and they would play games and they, they're finding, they would make fan films. I find the entire phenomena of fan films really fascinating that people are trying to enter into this, the story it means so much to them. Um, and so my, my, my thinking about that has been, you know, in some ways I think geekdom is, is a, a replacement for church in the sense of that it builds meaning and community for people that we have discovered that, you know, even when we no longer have church as the dominant institution society, we are still needing stories and we're still needing community and we're still needing ways of, of connecting with people. I, I had a, an experience a couple of months ago at a funeral and I'm in the back right before the funeral starts. I'm talking to the, the funeral director who's a young guy like me. And he asked me, do you like Star Wars? Just out of the blue, right? He, do you like Star Wars? I'm like, yeah. And he starts going into the the trailer, the new Star Wars trailer. It had just come out. It's like five minutes before the funeral started. And we're having this, this moment of, of sharing and enjoyment. And he's talking about the vehicles and how they you know are similar or different from the other movies. And it's a way of connecting with people on this, this deep, way and i think these stories to help shape who we are and what it means to to be a human and a person and what it means to sort of try to live in in society and and do the right thing and i think that's incredibly important i do too and it it's interesting that um that kind of parallel between um you know you you mentioned kind of like church it's it's a replacement for church or an analog for church. Um, and, and I think what it boils down to um, for me is, again, that word community. Like we are communal creatures, whether, um, you know, it doesn't matter how introverted you are. You need people on some level. You need other people mm-hmm. um, with. I mean, there are a few exceptions, I know. But and and I think this is true, whether 
you come from a background where you believe in evolution um, and like the Big Bang or whether you believe in like a creation story with no evolution, like what what is reinforced over and over and over again in our society is that we need other people to help us, um, you know, people we can relate to and people who can bolster us when we're down and support us and just like be there. And I, I wonder if that's part of, um, part of the reason why, church has become less central in like the United States, which still identifies as a Christian nation, you know, uh, largely anyway, is that we have found that that community that we used to seek in church in these other avenues. Yeah. I don't know if it's the cause. It may be the, the result or the symptom of, of this move away from moving away from church. You know, um, I'm not going to blame Star Trek for the end of Christian, <laughs> Christendom. Um, but I think, I think it's tapping into some sort of basic needs that we have. And, and one of the things I discovered as a pastor and why I, you know, I grew up geeky. Um, when I was younger and, and in Germany, I watched, you know, a lot of Eastern European television. Um, you know, they in, in Germany and in Europe, Eastern Europe, you know, the one thing about the Soviet Union is that they made great children's films and the Czech, Czechoslovakian as well. And often they made films, um, children's films and children's shows that were based on fairy tales and folk tales. That was sort of my first exposure to that. And I discovered Star Trek in the third or fourth grade with uh, Star Trek four, you know, the one with the whales. Um, and, and so, you know, I loved this stuff growing up. I, I kind of moved away, you know, from it. And in terms of, you know, I got married and had kids and, you know, still go see the movie, but you're not really involved in it. And when I became a pastor, I realized I needed some kind of grounding and escape that was not church. If I was going to do this and stay sane, um, I needed something else to obsess about. And I am sort of embracing the geek stuff in a way that I haven't in a long time. And that is, I came, I started back in July, right? Right around the time Gamergate, you know, first broke. But I've been meeting really cool people online and building relationships online. And, you know, I've, I didn't, I never played role-playing games growing up, but, you know, I, a friend and I have tried to start a Pathfinder game. We are in a small town though. There isn't anybody there really to play Pathfinder with, but you know, with my girls, I, I've done some role playing using rules designed for for kids. I've uh, right now with my oldest daughter, we're playing a simple pen and paper games. You know, I, I'm finding ways of connecting with this and and feeding something that hasn't been fed in a while, and I feel deeply appreciative for that. So what? What else? So you've got Star Trek, you've got Star Wars. Are there other um, institutions like a comic book series or anything else that you're using to kind of um, escape isn't the word I want to use um, <laughs> to kind of step away from your pastoral life? Well, right now, the Marvel film universe would be a big part of that. Um, one thing I realized with the Geek Cross podcast, I've mostly talked about movies. Um, 
I'm going to try to walk away from that a little bit, just balance it out a little bit. But, you know, Marvel films have, have been a big part of that. That's actually been something I've been able to share with my, my six-year-old. We, we have to discern what is appropriate for her because some of that is too dark. Uh, the Winter Soldier movie was too dark for her. You know, but she's connecting with that. And so that would be a part of it right now. Um, I play a monthly uh, mouse guard game um, over, over, over uh, Google Hangouts. Um, with some of my um, brother-in-law's friends. Let's see, what else am I doing? Um, you know, and also Doctor Who. I, I, I enjoy Doctor Who when it's on. Yeah, I uh, I did. I grew up watching Doctor Who, like the original stuff, and I hated it. I just hated it. Um, I had uh, Jason Snell. Um, I've had a couple of mm-hmm. meals with him and we've talked about Dr. Who and I'm just like, I cannot watch the old stuff. Like, but I love the new stuff. It's, um, well, it, when it's yeah. good, it's really good. And when it's bad, it's the worst stuff ever, but it's, it's like, it's like the original series of Star Trek, right? There are some great episodes yeah. and then there are other episodes and you're looking at this. I'm like, I can't believe what I'm watching. This is right. so off the wall. Yeah. Um, I read, you know, when I was in the fifth grade, the school library had those, the novelizations of the original series. Um, they came out in the eighties. I read most of those in the school library. And then when it was another 20 years before I actually ever watched uh, an original doctor who episode. And what'd you think? You know, um, uh, it's <laughs> like, yeah, they're hard to watch. They are. <laughs> The pacing, the pacing, I think, is what gets me like I'm so I'm very much a, a, a like a quick, you know, I'm on Twitter all the time. I need quick <laughs> information here. Yeah. And the pacing of the original Star Trek, or Star Trek, the the pacing of the original Doctor Who series is like slow and things that would happen in one episode of the modern series would take place over like four or five episodes of the old one. And I just can't, I can't do it. I need, I need the super cut or something. They remind me a lot of the old BBC costume dramas, you know, about, you know, I don't know, Pride and Prejudice or, or something. And just being super slow, the stuff that they did back in the sixties and seventies. And I think, you know, our expectations have changed a lot about, what is good television? I think we have a lot, our attention span has gotten a lot shorter. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, that's a struggle. Um, but you know, yeah, when it's good, Dr. Who can be very interesting and very provocative. I, I had a conversation a while back with my oldest daughter, who I think at that time was, was five. I mean, she's six now. And, you know, she in Sunday school, they had talked about, uh, Paul writes in one of his epistles, um, about that we will receive new bodies, you know, um, in the, in the afterlife, you know, and she was just kind of musing over that. And she just said, is that like, like Dr. Who, you know, because he, he regenerates. And I was just kind of floored that she had made that connection. Um, but I think there are, there are similarities in these, in these stories that they all go to some sort of root, um, experience or, or, or psychological place. I, I think for, for those of us who, who, who are Christians, you know, we believe that, you know, scripture is a story of God and we believe it's, it's the story 
you know, we believe it reveals something about who God is and what it means to be in relationship with God. But there are lots of other stories out there that we can draw from and we can learn from and connect to these things. And so I, um, I appreciate that, you know? Yeah, me too. Well, one of the things that I recently, you know, um, you know, I have two little girls and, you know, we lived with frozen for a while. And, oh, you um, said that past tense is frozen. Frozen's gone now. You've um, moved on? Not to the same. Frozen will never leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's not to the same level that had been. Oh, okay. uh, for a while, every single day for about six months, you know, the girls would perform Let It Go multiple times <laughs> with choreography. Uh-huh. We don't do that anymore. You know, we okay, moved on okay. from that. But, you know, Frozen to me was a story. It was one of the best, I, I thought, examples of of redemption that I had seen in a movie in a really long time. Um, it really is a story about being redeemed. Uh, for example, you know, so, so um, Elsa, you know, who, who is, who has these powers as this ability to create ice, you know, that she doesn't understand and can't control and her parents don't understand and can't control. And while her parents mean well, they, they lock her up in her bedroom for years, right. To protect her. And, and so, you know, when she's a grown up, she escapes that and she goes on the top of the mountain and she sings, let it go. And her powers are just unleashed and, and she still doesn't know how to control it because there is this negative side to it, right? Her powers threaten the entire kingdom by plunging the entire kingdom into, into everlasting winter. And, and she doesn't realize that. And so her little sister, right, Anna, who loves her and, and passionately and never gives up on her and is constantly trying to have a relationship with her, you know, seeks her out and eventually saves her life, right? We, we, Frozen is a Disney film that has watched other Disney films and, ha- <laughs> and sets up this expectation, you know, that the, the act of true love, which will save the kingdom, is going to be from one of these guys. It's going to be romantic. Right. It's a romantic love, but it's not romantic love. It's it's sister love. And Anna literally saves Elsa's life by putting her in front of a, a of a sword. And that act of love redeems Elsa and teaches her how to control her powers. That's an incredibly um powerful story of redemption. And as a Christian, I can make parallels with that. Um, to Jesus, you know, or not just simply Jesus, but what it means to to love people in general and to to re- try to redeem terrible circumstances and situations, and it gives me a way of talking about it with my with my kids. That's interesting. Well, and you know, they say there are only what is it seven seven stories, right? Um, that we just retell over and over and over again, but um, which I don't necessarily agree with, but um. <laughs> It's, you know, Frozen was not a perfect movie from my perspective by any means, but um, it was better than Disney has done in a long time. And I appreciated that that story of, you know, as you say, redemption of um, it doesn't necessarily matter where you have come from. Mm -hmm. There is hope. You know, mm-hmm. and 
Um, while that's not always true, I think that um, many times we lose sight of that in, you know, kind of the day to day drudgery and I don't know, mistakes that we make too. Yeah. I mean, it's what's going on there. Maleficent is also a very similar film like that in the sense of it takes a, a Disney story and turns it up on its head and brings out a completely different aspect. And that's also a film ultimately about redemption and about empathy that Maleficent is able to discover within her, her woundedness and in her anger of uh, this horrible thing that has happened to her. She finds this almost motherly love for Aurora. Completely different kind of story than, than in the original cartoon, which Maleficent was you know, literally a cartoon villain. Something is really interesting happening at Disney right now, and I'm, and I'm kind of excited about it. Well, and I'm hoping, kind of because, yeah, Disney and Marvel, that's, that's their thing now. So um, I'm hoping that they're having positive influences on each other. Because Marvel, um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I mean, mm-hmm. I, I saw a cast photo, and it was like, oh my gosh, there are people of color and women and it's not like all white dudes standing up there. And no. we have Agent Carter with, um, you know, Peggy Carter in a lead role, um, mm-hmm. kicking butt and taking names. And um, hopefully we get more people of color in that pretty soon because uh, it's getting a little white, but um, or it is pretty white. Um you know, and and I think Marvel's doing an excellent job with like telling stories and having a lot of different people um, in these stories without making a big deal of it. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think this is part of the gift of, of Joss Whedon, um, who was doing this kind of stuff, you know, 20 years ago with with Buffy. That they finally somebody gave him a platform, and I think he's having a lot of influence here. Um, with the Marvel universe and bringing out these other, these other things, you know, a little while ago, I mean, we had this rather hopeless conversation about Gatorade and I think here's the hope. Okay. My daughters love this stuff. Like love this stuff. My eldest went and saw, um, she went and saw Maleficent, right? She came home and for about a week afterwards, kept talking about this movie. And she talked about all the characters. She talked about the plot points. She essentially was doing film criticism, right? And loves it. And they love the superheroes. And one of the things that I have noticed is that they have an expectation that they are going to see females, strong females in these roles in a way that we didn't have that expectation when we were growing up. Um, we were, we were watching star, uh, <clears throat> we were watching Ghostbusters, right? And at the very end, you know, they save Sigourney Weaver and Sigourney Weaver's up there being all snuggly with and kissing one of the Ghostbusters. I can't remember which character. And my daughter pipes up. Is she going to be a Ghostbuster too? I wish. You know, I mean, (laughs) she has a total different set of expectations. Or I showed her Star Wars, you know, the original Star Wars movie. Unless Princess Leia was on the screen, she wasn't interested. (laughs) You know, she did not care about anything else except for Princess Leia. And we talked about it later. She says, well, I liked the movie, but I really, really liked the princess. Yeah. And I think that 
is the hope that there are changes in expectations about what we're willing to, what kind of stories we want and what kind of characters we want. And it's happening. And that's why you have this vicious reaction like Gamergate, which is trying to prevent um, it from happening. But I think it's going to be a, a feudal movement, just as Christian conservatives have not been able to prevent gay marriage from happening. You know, my kids, when they become adults and when they become you know, consumers with their own money, are not going to be willing to go back to male, white-dominated storytelling. Which is good. It's just... It's a long time, you know, like we're working, we're, we're, we're laying the groundwork, but I'm like, I want it now, but I, I do, I see your point and I, I do totally agree with it. And I think, um, I think we're fortunate that, um, well, I feel fortunate that we live in the era we do where we have, um, you know, like social media to help bolster things. And I, I don't think we would be where we are right now if Twitter and Facebook had not been invented. I, I don't. I think that things like little girls writing letters to um, publishing companies about having um, the I don't I don't even remember it was for boys like entomology type books for boys. And she was like, mm -hmm. but girls like bugs, too. And so they changed the title of the series just because this little girl wrote a letter. Um, and I've seen things like that more and more lately. And um, I think without the power of social media, I don't think that we would be where we are with those things right now. But I'm glad I'm grateful that we are. And I'm grateful that companies are kind of starting to um, pay attention and you know, enact change. Well, I mean, they'll, they, they, they follow the money. And I think part of the reason why Disney was so awful for a while, you know, there's a great book out there called Cinderella ate my daughter. Um, that author escapes me right now, but she writes about the, the sort of the Disney princess thing, you know, that was a conscious, conscious marketing decision. That was, um, and that was, and that kind of shaped a generation of, of girls, basically, of what they expected. And there seems to be a movement away from that right now. Not that we are rid of the Disney princess, but there are now alternatives. You know, um, Princess Leia is a Disney princess, technically. Um, the female Thor is technically a, a Disney princess. A Disney princess. And, <laughs> you know, that is so wonderful. And I find it's exciting that, that there is in in corporate media some attempt to to take things in really interesting directions yeah i'm excited to see where it goes i i truly am and um yeah. this is where i guess capitalism works because you're right it is it is about money like it is that's why we don't have a wonder woman movie right now is because they're like well nobody wants to see wonder woman and well, i i think dc is is totally missing out and missing the oh, ball. Yeah. Totally off in left field. But I think, I mean, part of it is DC has always been a little more conservative than Marvel. Um, and, and I think has often taken less, less risks than Marvel um, in the kinds of story, stories they tell. But some of the stuff they've done lately is just awful. Oh yeah. Like Superman's girlfriend or I, no, I don't want to be. Yeah. It's Wonder Woman. No, no, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> No. So how can people find you online? Well, um, I, I personally tweet under um, at JW Yoder. 
Um, the Twitter handle for Geek Cross is at Geek Cross Show. And do you have a website? Do not currently have a website. My okay. producing partner wants to build up the show up a little more before he's willing to put out money for it. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, yeah, that's the first thing we did actually with mine is <laughs> we're like, okay, website first. I like your approach. Actually, I appreciate I think your approach is better in some ways. But, you know, I'm not terribly concerned right now about my numbers, about how many people are listening. I am more important for me right now is just to go out and to do it and um, get better at it. You know, um, some of our episodes have been a little rough, you know, technical wise and but just learning how to do it and, and get good. And because um, I think one of the hardest things I've ever done is sit in front of a microphone all by myself without anybody to talk to and try to be interesting and um, informative for half an hour. That's tough. I actually really I like it. Um, I, I appreciated the 30 minute um, time slot because like that, that gives me a lot of room for doing like listening while I run an errand because Phoenix is big, you know, and it takes right, half right. an hour to get somewhere a lot of the time. Um, whereas, you know, shows that are an hour or two hours or sometimes even three hours, I have a really hard time fitting in. So I was like, oh, it's really nice. I really like that this is half an hour. It gives me something to think about. It gives me added perspective and, um, it was digestible, I guess. And I, I liked that a lot as I was listening. You know, I, I don't preach more generally more than between 15 and 20 minutes because at that point people stop listening. Um, you know, historically pastors have gone on for an hour or 40 minutes. I think that's absurd. Nobody pays attention that long. And so I think part of, of doing um, – part of what I'm learning is how do you – communicate in, in digestible chunks of information. You know, how do you get directly to what you need to say and say it well and not put in lots of filler? And so the podcast is a good way for me to, to continue working and practicing that. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, thank you. I like it. Good. You're welcome. Good. Um, well, in, Dear listeners, you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, or would like to be a guest, please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form. And if you have a few minutes, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for less than or equal.